Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, how you doing? Welcome. This is the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Hi. This is a weekly conversation with someone that I feel really inspired by. And if things go well, it's a conversation that'll hopefully inspire you as well. Look, I'm talking to people that have achieved something remarkable in their lives. And today, I can't wait for you to meet someone who is remarkable. She's an incredible woman. I'm going to say it. She's the first lady of Irish surfing. Her name is Eski Britton, or to be more accurate, Dr. Eski Britton. Find her on Twitter at Eski Surf, E-A-S-K-E-Y-S-U-R-F. Follow her now. Let her know that you heard her here. I'll tell you more about Eski in a moment. Um, thank you very much to everybody that has sent in questions for the one-year anniversary show. I'm hoping to answer your questions. I'm going to answer questions on the one-year anniversary show. So if you've got a question, can be about anything, leave me a voicemail at osherginsberg.com, O-S-H-E-R-G-U-N-S-B-E-R-G.com. On a laptop or on an Android device, you just click right there and leave a message. But on an iPhone or iPad, there's an app to download. It takes just a second, but thank you so much for doing it. Some great questions coming through already, and it's going to be really wonderful to have you as a part of that show because I can't make this show without you. And knowing that you're listening, knowing that you're a part of it, Every week is the reason I do it, and I love it. So um, thank you very much. Please rate, comment the show, comment on the show. That always helps me out. I don't do any marketing for this. People only find out about this show when you help me get the word out. So if you could take 30 seconds to rate and comment um, in the iTunes store, that would be awesome. Just reach into your pocket as well. If you're listening to it on a phone, on an app right now, there's a share link in the corner of whatever app you're listening to this on, or even if you're on the website, you can hit the share button and tweet out or Pinterest or whatever you want. It's all there. Uh, also, final plug. 
Um, I have some other podcasts that I do every week. There's one I do with my friend Natalia called Let Me Tell You Something. Uh, there's one I do with my, that's about relationship advice. There's another one I do with my friend Alicia Malone about movies called Malone's Movie Minutes. And um, this week I'm a guest on Goodwill's new podcast, which is fun. It's called Permission to Shine. I'm less introspective on those ones. We laugh a lot on those other podcasts. It's good. So anyway, checking in with you just to check in. Um, I hope you're well and happy. Thanks to everybody that reached out through the week to say hello on email. You can email me simply by responding to the mailing list link at osherginsberg.com. Sign up there. That's why I write back to everybody. So thanks for getting in touch. I know that I talk about fairly personal things on this show and that's resonating with a lot of people. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, it's good to be back in Sydney. I like being in Sydney a lot because I get to see my friends, but I also get to see my doctor, the guy that looks after me regularly here. I, I always say it's always important to have a team taking care of you. No one does this alone. But having said that, my doctor did need to remind me of that fact this week. I kind of needed to come to acceptance again of the brain that I was born with. I started to get a bit I started to get a bit pissed off that my brain does what it does. I started to wonder what would it be like if I had a brain that acted like a normal, you know, I did air quotes there, normal brain. And I started bargaining with the universe. Dangerous, I know, but I started making bargains with the universe and all kinds of other things. But I had to come to acceptance. Funny that, isn't it? It's right in front of us. It's right in front of us. The conscious acceptance of how things are. Such a powerful tool, but so often we fail to use it to empower ourselves. But yeah, I had to put on my big boy pants. And once I did that, once I came fully into acceptance that this is exactly how my brain is. This is exactly how my brain thinks. This is, these are the things that I need to do to manage that. If I wish to operate as a functioning member of society, <laughs> once I came into acceptance of all those things, I look, I slept a lot better. And as we know, sleep is a precious resource. That and the meds. Ah, <laughs> oh, the meds. Look, I know that meds aren't for everyone. I know that there's side effects that aren't great for you, for me, that are the best for everybody. But And also that it takes a little tweaking to get the mix right. But boy, oh boy. Thank you, biochemists. Anybody's a biochemist, thank you very much for all your work. And thank you to whoever invented the bicycle because, goodness, cycling, that just makes everything better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Iski and I actually talk about that movement and meditation, but we'll – We'll get onto that. My guest today is Eski Britton. She's a world-class big wave surfer from the rugged northwest coast of Ireland. She was born into the first family of Irish surfing. She's named after a surf break. She competed internationally on the Women's Junior Surfing Tour for three years. She also happens to be Dr. Eski Britton. She's a PhD in environmental and marine sciences. She works very hard in ocean and local fishery conservation. But she centers her work, which is real interesting, she centers her work on how humans form a part of every local ecology. And that went to another level when a few years ago, she was the first woman to ever surf in the southwest corner of Iran, a place that the New York Times dubbed the scariest little corner on earth. Yeah, that Iran. Mm -hmm. She then started her nonprofit, Waves of Freedom, and has been back to Iran to enrich the community there through taking women surfing. And she tells some incredible stories of her firsthand experience of Tehran, the local culture, and what it was like to properly bring surfing to a country in a participatory way for the first time. Just try and imagine 
for example, like I know a lot of people listen to America and Australia, but try and imagine both those countries without surfing and try and imagine the person that brought it there for the first time. Pretty amazing, right? So anyway, Iski got to do that. She's an unassuming person. She's barely over five foot tall. She's got a whip smart sense of humor though. And she's always ready to completely floor you when she just casually pulls out her phone and shows you the video of her XXL, XXL big wave awards entry. Um, because she surfs waves as big as your house towed into on a jet ski. She is a powerful, powerful woman. Um, look, you may not surf. I understand that. Not everybody surfs. Crikey, not everybody swims. You may have an interesting relationship with the water that's not quite so immersive, pun intended, as East skis. But this conversation, it'll light up your sense of adventure and hopefully – inspire you to look at the world I don't know free of judgment or freer from judgment certainly did for me because if you look at the world free of judgment there's a hope that by doing so an entire universe of possibility that you may not have otherwise seen becomes available to you and that's how Eastky lives her life you're going to dig this fuel up that jet ski pull on that buoyancy vest and come with me to a lovely afternoon in the late spring in Amsterdam with Eastie Britain. How's the hammock? Awesome. I love the hammock. Big fan. Probably yeah. just do away with the bed and keep the hammock. <laughs> it's very, very nautical. It's appropriate, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It is good. Well, I'm, I'm grateful you can do this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Just make sure everything's off. How are you, Eastgate? Yeah, good. Yeah? I'm glad. Feeling relaxed after that swing in the hammock. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just before, uh, I was as I was setting up my mics, um, I'll tell you how Eastgate and I know each other in a sec, but as I was setting up the mics, I put on some uh, Augustus Pablo and Eastgate sat in, there's a hammock in the Airbnb that I'm staying in. And Eastky sat in the hammock, laid in the hammock in the Amsterdam sunset while Augustus Pablo rocked her away into the afternoon. You. Yep. <laughs> Seems like it did the job. Yeah, super chill night. <laughs> now, we are both studying at the uh, Think, but at Think, the Amsterdam School of Creative Leadership. Mm-hmm. And this is how we first met. I know. And I'm, I'm thrilled. I, I'm, I'm thrilled to be studying at this place. And I'm thrilled because I work with so many incredible people like yourself at this school. And it's really inspiring. I get fully inspired. And I want to talk to, a, you know, all of them. But I, I think I wanted to definitely talk with you because of, I don't know, I just really relate to your journey and, and what you do. And before people hear this, I'll have done a, hey, and this is Iski and this is why she's awesome and stuff. But I think the most interesting thing at the first part was that before Amsterdam, we've both been in the same place at the same time once before. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Amazing serendipity in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. It was the 2004 Pro Juniors, Billabong Pro Juniors at Narrabeen. Yeah. My, my first year competing on the Pro Junior Tour. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. What was it like? like? How old were you? 2004, me being terrible at math. <laughs> ten, I was, 10 years ago. Okay, 10 years ago. Yeah, I was 18. Right. Yeah. And what do you remember about being on the tour? Um, at that stage, I yeah, I just finished uh, with school and was really excited to travel. And that was my, I guess, the beginning of my solo journey traveling around the world for about a period of 
well, I still do that, but a period of three years, um, really dedicated to building up my surfing career. And, um, it was, it was, it was tough actually, because I was, you know, a girl from Ireland starting out in a totally whole new world, a really competitive environment and trying to make those connections and fit in and see if it was for me, the whole competitive thing. Um, and it was pretty full on. You're moving and traveling a lot from one event to the next. Um, but also it was great. I was totally open to that experience just to let it all in and see what happened. I never really saw much. I only, I only was really kind of exposed to the big guns when I was, you know, working with the ASP. Um, but, and, and even then only really like the Billabong guys because that's who we were working with. But I never really kind of got a clue as to how. I remember that during those pro juniors, that's when I saw Adrian D'Souza when he was 16, just destroy everyone. And I remember that was, you know, incredible to watch him surf. And you could see even at 16, he was just, just mind blowing. Um, what was it like? Like, how did the decision come to be that you would get on the tour? Cause it doesn't, it's not free to fly from <laughs> Belfast to <laughs> Sydney. Uh, no, no, it's definitely not. Um, I guess I was experimenting with how, uh, I could basically live my passion surfing and, um, I just knew I needed to get out of Ireland and experience the world and push myself and be with the best surfers to do that. And for that, I needed to travel. And so it was a big personal investment. And as well as that, you know, building support and figuring out how to do that. And then also having exposure to other amazing surfer girls my age. So growing up in Ireland, I never really had that. That was also exciting. Yeah, because you were, you would have, I'd imagine the surf scene, where you grew up in, is it Donegal? Yes. <laughs> uh, not quite as pumping as, say, Burley Heads or, you know, the North Shore of Hawaii or even Southern California. A very different surf culture. Yeah. Especially when I started, which I, you know, I've been surfing since before I can remember. And it was just not not a normal thing to be doing. <laughs> yeah. Because when, you know, you see pictures of Irish surf in, in the magazines, which is the only place I've ever seen it, it, it just looks foreboding, dangerous, <laughs> and just freezing. <laughs> it's all of those things, which makes it really special, but not your typically appealing surf destination of, you know, sunshine, bikinis, and palm trees. Uh, definitely not. <laughs> but it means you get heaps of waves to yourself. Yeah, well, used to. That's definitely changed, but it was, it was very uh, low-key and definitely uh, more underground when I started. Yeah, you've since grown into, grown is the wrong word, you've since morphed into uh, an even more vibrant version of living your passion, uh, which is being around the ocean. And, and you've managed to keep surfing as the center point of all that through your whole career, which I'm stoked to talk to you about. But I, I know you've told this story a bunch of times, but the story you told me last night mm. about what happened the first time you remember your dad taking you surfing, you know it wasn't the first time he did. But the first time you remember, I mean, I think that really sets up kind of who you are and how you look at life in a really remarkable way. Yeah, it's it's quite a special story. I always get asked, you know, a lot of people the first time they surf, they have that experience of riding the wave for the first time and it really stays with them. And for me, I, I can't really remember that because, yeah, I've been surfing since before I could really remember. But when I was about four years old, my dad took me surfing. I grew up in this uh, beach called Rasnaula. It was a perfect sort of learning ground and a place where the ocean definitely became my number one playmate. 
And dad, I remember dad taking me out and I'm in this old wetsuit. It's all multicolored, stiff, uh, enormous adult wetsuit. There was no wetsuits for kids then and all rolled up. It would just sort of fill up with water as soon as I got in the sea. And dad pushing me off on a wave. And so my my first memory of my surf experience is is a wipeout, like actually getting tossed off and tossed around in the water, kind of washing machine. And then trying to get back up and the surfboards over my head. and uh, it, So you can't surface? No, I can't surface. Could uh, you swim at this point? Uh, yeah. Well, I guess, that, yeah. I'm, yeah. I remember being put in a swimming pool at a really young age as well. Oh. I never had, I don't ever remember a moment of being really scared that made me ever hesitant to go in the water when I was a kid. Wow. But even this experience, so I eventually make my way back up to the surface, coughing and spluttering. And I was like a really determined little kid and kind of wanted to like do it my way and get it right and not be told what to do. And dad came up or I saw dad as soon as I came up and he was actually uh, roaring, laughing. I was stunned and um, and really I remember being really annoyed and frustrated and but not panicked or by the experience, but more just, yeah, kind of really pissed off. My little ego had taken such a dent that, you know, dad was laughing at me. <laughs> but really, I think what that experience captures and what dad actually taught me was that in those scary situations and the, the shit that life throws at you in those dangerous moments, actually the best course of action more than not is just to laugh. You know? uh, <laughs> um, especially I find surfing that definitely helps. Yeah. That you helps you get through that experience. Um, yeah, I most definitely didn't have that experience when I did my first wipeout. <laughs> Not at all. I think I was t- I was twenty six the first time I stood on a right. On a okay, yeah, yeah, at Freshwater Beach. No way. Yeah, yeah. Freshwater with Brad Davis, uh, who was the brother of uh, Merrick Davis, who, who was the first guy that ever showed me how to surf. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I'll never forget. I can remember the waves clear as day. Yeah. I remember that green wave. Like I'll never, ever, ever, ever forget it. Um, but, yeah, the laughing thing. <laughs> that's handy. Yeah, I do it a lot, as you can hear. <laughs> but, yeah, like as far as being frustrated and, you know, it took me a long time to learn how to do what you just described. You got to just learn that at four, <laughs> all right? I had to learn that through very repeated punishing lessons of the universe that I've only probably been doing it the last couple of years to laugh when things don't go well, probably even like to a fine point, probably only the past few months, all right, rather than take it personally and make it about myself um, to just kind of laugh it off. I mean, what a gift you were given from such an early age to just, you know, um, because the ocean, like I've heard you talk about this, like the ocean doesn't care. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. Ocean doesn't care, which is, yeah. you know, which is wild. Now, I, all I know about, um, uh, you know, Northern Ireland is, you know, U2 songs and Daniel Day Lewis films. And my uh, grade 10 history teacher who, who grew up there, um, as they call it, the troubles would have still been going on when you were a kid, right? Uh, yeah, I guess Donegal is a border county. Mm. So it's in the Republic, but very close relationship with Northern Ireland. And my parents would have definitely been exposed to a lot more of it. And I guess as I was growing up, it was shifting um, into the peace process, but still a lot of activity and, and violence. 
uh, it's it's a funny relationship. The rest of Ireland is quite removed from it, really. But I think being in Donegal, which it's uh, let me explain, Donegal is like the most isolated corner of Ireland that most people in the rest of Ireland, especially Dublin, don't realize really exists. Uh, so I've really grown up on the all right on the edge where the land meets the sea, quite literally. And it's really wild and remote. And I'm always drawn then to places that are like that. And so you just have this it has a certain the people there too have this certain kind of resilience to just get on with it um and real exposure to the elements yeah we get the full brunt of the north atlantic just slamming into the the coastline but you were talking the other night about um uh getting pulled out of the car as a kid or roadblocks and stuff like that yeah, so we had to, I was big into all kinds of sports and a lot of it, there wasn't that many facilities where I lived uh, really out there. So mum was determined that I would get to experience everything I wanted to. So she would take me to Inneskillen, which is about an hour drive. And I would do all sorts of things like jujitsu and gymnastics and swimming and and it and not ending up not getting back to quite late at night, but we had to cross a uh, border crossing checkpoint. And at that time, the, the RUC were still there and, um, you know, the military. And so we'd always have to stop and get pulled over and get checked. And then one night we were coming back and there was a random roadblock. And this is in the middle of nowhere, um, kind of like a back country road. And I just remember that was the, that really memory really stuck with me because it's the first time I felt that sense of, real vulnerability and then it our position being taken advantage of your mum's there with me as a little kid of I don't know what age I would have been but not more than eight years old and yeah just being told to get out of the car uh sort of having guns pointed at us and not knowing why or what's going on and, and having everything torn apart in the car um it yeah it was really upsetting and then mum I just know her being really really tense in that situation of it all ended up being okay in the end, but it was also really humiliating. It sort of didn't leave a, a good feeling at all. What did, how did your mum debrief you after that on the, the rest of the drive? Uh, I, yeah, I think mum at the time probably just tried to make light of it, like it was this adventure. Um, but also mums have been always been incredibly open with me of her whole experience and how things are and just showing all sides to everything and encouraging us to be really curious, ask questions, explore, and then make our own decisions from that. So that was how we were kind of brought up with, in terms of the Catholic church and the troubles and all of that. Yeah. And what about, uh, what about your dad? I know you've got quite a, 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 I envy the relationship you have with your dad. (laughs) You're what in October, you're going to Newfoundland. Yeah, I mean, dad's my number one surf partner. We both motivate each other to keep going. And it's just lovely, I think, now as I get older to have, especially to have that relationship with him where I go home and we just go surfing all together, you know, and hang out. And um, yeah, it's it's really special thing to share that same love for the ocean that he's given me and then we have together. And we're, yeah, we're going on this amazing surf trip before he turns before he turns 60 uh, to uh, yeah, Atlantic Canada. He likes places that are also wild and cold and empty with not many people. <laughs> oh man, like how far, how far can we go? <laughs> oh, so we should, we should talk about, I just want to talk about your dad for a sec. Cause a mm. lot of like, you know, my folks, my mom was, my mom was very, uh, 
you know, kind to allow me to indulge in, in music and she, you know, she was one to buy me guitars and, you know, for birthdays it would be a guitar, if, you know, a couple of years apart, maybe another guitar. When I was 14, she bought me a, you know, acoustic and, um, you know, and then years later, I, you know, I saved up and I bought my first bass and all this kind of stuff. But she would always, I'd cart me around to re- rehearsal and band practice and stuff like that. Um, you're mentioning how isolated you are. How hard, like, how close to the nearest surf, surf shop? I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't any. Um, <laughs> I remember when like, the first one opened um, in, in Bundorn. That's the sort of the main surf center now. And now actually the whole place has transformed. The only thing that's really keeping most coastal regions in Ireland going is actually surfing. It's become, it's actually become the main business. But that wasn't the case at all when, when I was a kid. And and certainly then growing up with all the stories of dad, you, you're exposed to that sort of pioneering mentality. As he he and his brothers were the first surfers in, in Ireland um, to start pioneering it and uh, with little or no knowledge or equipment. or So it was really very creative, innovative time and not really, yeah, really experimentational at all levels, I guess. And Well, were they shaping their own boards, making their own boards? Oh, yeah, loads of stories of all the yeah disasters and <laughs> trying to make boards. Um, this, I guess the story goes going right back as to how they got into it would have been my grandparents had a hotel on the beach in the sixties. My grandmother went to California to, she was working for the tourism board and promoting tourism in Ireland. And at that time, that's when the whole surf boom was happening there with Gidget and and everything else, but obviously nothing in Ireland. And she just made that, I suppose, that association with the beach back home and the beach culture there. And she ended up, she uh, brought a surfboard back to to kind of her intention was never to create a surfing revolution in Ireland, but really to have it, you know, displayed in the hotel or for for guests or something. But dad and his brothers had other ideas and and they took the board. And I remember him saying that they just didn't know what to do with it for the first year. Uh, They were lying down before they saw a traveling surfer come and stand up on a board. They're like, oh, that's what you can do on it. (laughs) And to the point where they'd flip a coin, they'd have one old dive suit, you know, the the top and bottom part, and they'd flip a coin who would get which which half to surf in. Oh, man. And how how cold is the water? Well, wintertime, it gets to about uh, six or eight degrees. And, and then in the summertime, maybe 16. So Still, that's... Or 14, yeah. <laughs> so, wow. So your dad and his brothers are just figuring it out. I was figuring out how to repair dings, figuring out what to do when the one fin that is in the whole county falls off. And... Or, or I remember my uncle making a, like the shortboard revolution kind of kicking in and I mean, so shortboard as in board? a lot of boards then would have been, you know, 10 foot plus and yeah. the shortboard maybe was, was about eight foot. So, <laughs> and actually getting one of these old, like now would have been this the most amazing replica, you know, or retro surfboard from that era and, and taking, basically taking a saw to it and <laughs> cutting the nose off to shorten it. Um, we still have that actually. You still got the first board? Yeah, the board that got a little bit butchered, to be honest. But yeah, we have it. Wow. Have <laughs> you ever ridden it? No, I haven't. I should. It's uh, She's called the Blue Mermaid. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounds like that, you know, like I really love one of my favorite surf documentaries or surf films is, uh, is, is a film called Single Fin Yellow. Uh, have you seen it? Yeah. 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 It's, it's a basically it's a story about a guy in, uh, he actually lives in Manhattan Beach about 10 miles south of me, uh, Tyler Surfboards. And uh, he basically made this yellow single fin glassed in fin board and he just sent it around the world 
um, with a film crew just to the next surfer, to the next surfer, to the next surfer, went to Australia, Japan, went to Europe, went to, uh, got ridden a pipeline, oh, you know, wow. it went yeah. back door and, you know, he <laughs> got all dinged up and destroyed. And, you know, just the idea that this old board mm. could be ridden in, you know, by all these surfers all over the planet is, uh, there's something about that. And there's also another, what was that? There's the, the Malloy brothers did a film bit about the green board there's this shitty green board that lived in like Jack Johnson's garage or something like that. And it was like, he just got all these different people to ride this same board and there's footage of Slater on this thing and then riding it backwards. It's like half a long board. It's totally butchered and could be fun. Yeah. I mean, just, that's it. There's such like a, uh, so many stories in surfboards. They all have their own characters. It's yeah, it definitely could be interesting. That's, that's a good idea. Was it a thing to, you know, to save up? Like, do, do you remember asking for your first board? Was it hand-me-downs? What was it? Yeah, a lot of it was hand-me-downs. We actually had this one board. We learned on the soft tops. The thing that was going for me really was that the, one of the first surf clubs in Ireland had been built uh, that my grandfather helped um, fund uh, right on the on the coast in Rasnaila, where I grew up. So we had access to the beginner boards to learn on. And in the summertime, it was a great hub for all the kids. Like Where I grew up, it's more of a holiday resort and uh, there'd be a good buzz around it then. In the wintertime, there would be no one but me on the beach. <laughs> Amazing. And we also had this one board to progress onto, like, the hard boards. Uh, that was, like, I remember, like, a pink, white, and blue color. And that would get passed down through all the cousins. And we, we've all learned how to, to stand up on that thing. And uh, we still have that. That's that's pretty cool. But um, And in the wintertime in Ireland, I went I would go to school. And mum would pick me up about... It would have about half hour left of daylight. I'm in my school uniform. I get mum to take my wetsuit when she picks me up so I can get out of my school uniform, get changed into my wetsuit in the car, which is no easy feat. Um, so that as soon as I hit the beach, I'm good to go in the water and make the most of it. And mum would be there in the car park, like having to flash the car lights in the dark to get me to come in. It's freezing cold. I'd eventually come out of the water and she'd have to, I'd be so frozen, she'd have to peel the wetsuit off me. Yeah. When your fingers don't work. Yes. <laughs> and this was what, a daily occurrence? Uh, yeah. Yeah. See, it's, it's wild. You know, I, I think of, I'm, I'm guessing you were a kid with a lot of energy. Yeah. Uh, and that was just unstoppable. It's like, I mean, I think about, you know, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but like, I wonder, you know, if you'd grown up anywhere else without these kind of opportunities where people have just gone, oh, we have to medicate her because we can't, <laughs> we can't slow her down. She's obviously got something wrong with her because she wants to just keep moving. Yes, uh, I do. I even like, I like the idea of uh, meditation and movement, you know, that I find it really hard to sit still. Um, and I'm working on that. Yeah, that th you're probably right. So... I'm guessing like you're describing a pretty remote, pretty, um, I don't want to use the word barren. I want to use the word rugged yes, uh, outpost of, of humanity on the, on the edge of the, the North Sea. At what point are you like, I might want to try out some of those uh, palm trees. <laughs> <laughs> I might want to, um, you know, how did you first learn about surf culture outside of, of your town? Yeah. This is before the internet. This is, I'm sure that yes. they weren't showing the endless summer late night on Irish te Irish television. No, um, yeah, absolutely. I get everything then was just communicated through surf magazines, um, and they were hand me down. But really, uh, yeah, I had the travel bug also from a really young age, and that's really thanks to my parents, and especially we'd, uh, we'd just go on safari with dad, literally loading up his van and 
putting the mattress in the back and heading down the west coast of Ireland, experiencing new places that way. And every winter, I mean, the winter gets a bit bleak in Ireland, so it's nice to break it up <laughs> so you don't go too stir crazy. And at that time, the Canary Islands were just opening up as a destination. And I remember going there as, as a kid and basically family surf holidays. I'm so lucky would always really just be surf trips. Wow. Um, and dad would always take the surfboards everywhere we went. And I surfed with him in, in the Canaries when the surf scene, even there, it was kind of still just just growing. Mm. But that that gave me a real taste for, I think, always having dad and trusting in, in him. And I would just follow him wherever he went. Mm. So I got exposed to, I guess, growing up in Ireland and then the other experience being in the Canary Islands to a lot of power of the ocean and powerful waves and being really comfortable in that environment. And and then see, wanting to seek more of that. So just, I remember when I got my first, like when I started playing guitar and I got Guitar Player magazine. And, you know, now I'll read a magazine once and I'll maybe leaf through it again when I'm on the toilet and then that's it. But I remember back then I was like, it's my one copy. And I just <laughs> read it and then I read it again and then I read it again and I read it again. <laughs> Were there magazines like that for you? Yeah, actually I managed to get my hands on one of the rare copies of women's surf magazines called Wahin. And I'd always get, I ask for a subscription for my birthday. And that was my yeah big source of inspiration. I remember getting one of the first issues had on the cover, uh, amazing image of Rel Sun, a Hawaiian um, surfer. She's known as the Queen of Makaha. And it was just this beautiful image of her on a wave smiling. And then her incredible story in that about her, I guess, her passion for that and her whole embodiment of the Aloha spirit and wanting to pass that on to, to other kids and also pioneering women surfing at a time when there just wasn't anything going for them. And being in the first women's professional tour and a real... Um, I suppose, voice for women surfing it was really inspiring. Um, so when you saw those photos of this, you know, clearly powerful, you know, woman just smiling on this wave. Yeah. Did the universe just crack open? Did the lightning bolt hit you? Well, I knew for her that her motivation to do it was simply because she loved it. She'd fallen in love with the sea as a kid, which I felt like I, I knew I had as well. And I still am. <laughs> it's probably my number one love. And... Um, yeah. And I also knew there was, and growing up in my household as well, it was something like dad's a real, I, people would call him a soul surfer. I mean, surfing is his, that's his spirituality, his, he can't not do it. Um, real morning of the earth kind of uh, yeah, soul yeah. arches. Yeah, he is. And it's just, he just, yes, somebody does it because he loves it. And he, he doesn't feel there's any room in that for something like, uh, I guess, a competitive element or competition. And then I was a kid doing contests was my vehicle to connect with other people and, and push myself. So I traveled a lot with the Irish surf team since I was like 12 years old. So that was really what I, I loved about that. But actually competing, I didn't, for that period of time in the water and that whole energy, I, I didn't really ever fully connect with it. Um, and it was always this dynamic tension. Mm. And I just knew the real reason that's so strong for me now is that like the therapy part of it almost, that that sense of freedom that I just, I know that I'm going to feel so much better after I'm surfing. And it's such a personal thing. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that. I remember when I first started, you know, working, uh, the music television channel I was working at, we, we started covering the ASP events for Billabong. And I remember seeing these, you know, for me, it's like this benefit of, oh, okay, this is really interesting. There's these 
only four guys or sometimes only two guys on this otherwise packed wave. There's normally like 300 guys at Burley Heads or 300 guys at Pipeline. There's just two of them out there. And then mm. how can you judge that? <laughs> how can you judge the experience that I'd had? Like terribly, but, you know, yeah. I'd still have that experience of like, oh, the sun's coming up, there's dolphins, oh, the wave looks really good. You know, <laughs> yeah. That way, that turn felt really nice. I don't care what it looked like. It felt really good. Um, you know, mm-hmm. how do you judge that? Yeah, I, I you know, it's I just it's a, it's a really tricky one. I mean, that's the thing. The other thing is that it's a constantly shifting playing field and there's always going to be an element of luck. I mean, it, at that highest level when everyone is that amazing on the professional tour, it's a tough call and it, the ocean is so unpredictable. It it doesn't make it certainly doesn't make it easy. And then it is quite subjective. It's mm. like what does that really feel like what you're actually simply observing you know uh with a score sheet um yeah <laughs> there's a lot more to it than that I so think. i'm guessing like it sounds to me like your family was definitely the kind of family that was uh you're risky you can do whatever you want not you're risky you're a daughter there's some things you can and can't do at what point did you ever first run into hang on you're saying no to me because i'm a woman like when did that ever arrive uh, when you were young or was it only when you kind of started moving away from Ireland? Um, yeah, I grew up and I, I surfed and I was surfing with boys. Um, most, yeah, it was just all guys in the water and I didn't ever see myself as different because I was a girl, but then that, yeah, that's certainly to do with my upbringing. And then it changed, I suppose when, especially when I started competing and yeah, there's, because they run, they run, okay, there's crappy conditions. Oh, let's put the girls in. Let's put the girls in and, and we'll get the guys in when the spell comes up. Every time. So just that being undervalued like that way, simply because of your gender, that really sucked. And I was aware of it from quite a young age. And just the whole how the industry would use and portray and then not actually support <laughs> women and girls in sport, especially surfing was and this this sort of myth of it being a masculine, such a masculine male dominated sport, I just didn't seem to fit with me because the ocean is for me, it's real powerful, but I almost say like there's a lot of feminine energy. And the first female surfers or first surfers in the world were actually both men and women, a lot of women in, in early Hawaiian days, when you see those old engravings of from Captain Cook's voyage in 1700s. And it's wild how these... they draw the waves, isn't it? Because they can't, <laughs> they can't quite figure out in their brains what they're looking at. So they draw the waves in the weirdest ways and they draw the way they're standing in the strangest, strangest ways. Yeah. But, you know, if you go back right back to the roots, it's, it's quite a, yeah, it's a real. And it was. It was just a thing to do for joy, right? Yeah. Yeah. It seemed to be. I have heard though that it was also used quite interestingly to like uh, solve disputes and things like that. But actually what was amazing, it's the one thing, because it's quite hierarchical in, uh, in Hawaii in more ancient times, um, that it was something that both royalty and regular folk did together and Mm -hmm. because the ocean is that one place where there isn't those physical barriers you can't put them up right and the ocean doesn't discriminate i mean a wave isn't going to treat a king differently (laughs) versus a you know a local girl from the village so yeah so when you because that also i remember being struck by that 
being when I first started going to these contests and the contest director would come out and they would look at the weather map and they would, because surf is very fickle. Surf can sometimes only be good for 45 minutes in the one day. And, you know, I understand the contest director wants to be sure that the best surfers on the day get, you know, the best waves to possibly do what they can do. And, you know, they have that and they want to be sure that, you know, there's that arena for the surfers to do the thing they can do the best. But time and again, I'd see they'd send the women surfers out in conditions that were just like, well, how's anyone going to do anything in this? You know, because they wanted to get those heats out of the way. <laughs> yeah, we'll run. The, I remember hearing, yeah, we'll run the girls. <laughs> like, what are you, like, come on, man. <laughs> the way they talked about it. I remember it was always being kind of bristled with me. Like, when, like, like you mentioned, when you see the male surfers in the posters, it's here's some guy on a wave doing something awesome or here's some guy standing on a beach in the sunset looking hot, like beastly in a wetsuit. Um, <laughs> but when you see the female professional surfers in a poster, it's here I am on a longboard with my ass looking hot in a bikini. <laughs> yeah, there's this real, obviously because surfing, I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to look at. And then and especially the female form in water and you're, you're dancing across a wave on a surfboard. It's just gorgeous. There's a few more beautiful things in the world. <laughs> There's few more beautiful things in this world than a beautiful woman on a longboard. I, I, I swear to you, like it's just jaw dropping. So grace, so graceful. Well, and, and that's great, but it's it's just terrible then when that gets really misused. And I do know um, a lot of um, a lot of stories where you know women and girls are amazingly talented, really successful, um, competitive surfers. And just not being able to to survive or make it or sustain their their livelihood on the tour because of their image, it didn't fit with what was expected or what the brand wanted. And I mean, yeah, that's just incredible pressure and, and yeah, really unfair. We want you to be super competitive, super gung ho, able to paddle into you know ten foot of swell at pipe, and essentially be a Victoria's Secret bikini model yes. at the same time. Yeah. And if you're not, I mean, and then that's the other thing. You hear the things that get said about women that don't fit into that category. They may be incredible surfers with exceptional technical skill and the things that get said about them, it's like, come on, man. And then no no one would ever say that about a guy surfer, ever. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the surf culture, it's very, uh, in one way, really open-minded and uh, because you know we travel a lot and have all these connections, and also being in nature like that, I mean, it's it's a pretty amazing environment. But then there's this other side to it that's also it's very a, a tough. Um, it can be quite exclusive and really hard to actually break into. Very cliquey, and then there's the yeah these sort of perceptions that just you know, persist. Um, and then especially when it comes to issues of sexuality and and things like that, or just. Really, it's like that culture of silence around that. And then when it does come out, it's, yeah, it's it's really not in a good way. Yeah. Uh, so you said three years of doing that. What was the point of like? <laughs> well, right. the thing that got me was like this sense of here I am. Yeah. And putting a huge amount of investment of time, energy, money and surfing the shittiest waves you can imagine on these terrible beach breaks for for what outcome in the end um uh, yeah I mean for something like that you just have to go all in 110 percent and I just knew that obviously there's something holding me back or actually pulling me somewhere else and Mm. there was always I knew more to it because of the way I'd grown up I suppose 
And I just thought that surfing has always been that opportunity that I've used as a vehicle to get these bigger, deeper experiences. I, what I really loved was using it and getting to know a place. That was the other thing. You're constantly, you're on one beach and another beach and it sounds really amazing and glamorous, but after a while it could be any beach and you don't get a chance to really immerse yourself in a place or learn about a people or a culture. So it's very insular in that way. Mm. Um, yeah. And I just thought as surfers traveling the world, experiencing all these places and getting that, those kind of opportunities, there was also an element of needing to have, take a bigger responsibility um, for those places that we were in and just not actually really contributing very much. Um, and, and so when did the idea of, you know, going to do something about that pop in your mind and how did that vision kind of come to a focus? Um, well, believe it or not, I, like I had the amazing opportunity to go on some boat trips, cemento ice, which is total surfer's paradise and the most amazing waves on the planet. Not like surface paradise in the no, gold, not that kind of surface paradise. With, <laughs> with the high rises and the high rises and the mini golf. No, 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 very far from that. And these remote islands with you know perfectly barreling waves, like the ones, the waves that you draw in your copybook at school when you're mind surfing. Um, at least that's what I did, uh, <laughs> and it was great. And I was in a, a boat full of all these uh, incredible uh, surfer girls from Australia and other parts of the world. And I loved it, but I guess I saw too how I went a couple of times and saw how rapidly it was changing and that a lot of, for a lot of the surfers are on these bubbles, everything's organized. You're on this boat with your crew of surfers and it was all about getting the best shots. And it was, you, it was a job. You were trying to get images for your sponsors and Mm -hmm. right. But it just struck me as all being a little bit, I mean, I wanted to know, when local people came up on, on wooden boats trying to sell us stuff, like what was their story and where they're from and how did they see us and what was happening on land or behind those trees or, and then what was happening also, I was seeing how it's, it seemed on the surface really amazing and pristine, but everything was starting to get a bit hammered. You know, there was no thought, I guess, long-term for dropping anchors everywhere and how do you deal with waste and because it was actually exploding that much there were so many surf charter boats and then land camps were starting to open up and I wonder well what's that interaction like in these places that are very remote untouched communities and cultures so I I guess that where that comes from you think well how does that just jump into your head (laughs) and this is when I was in my 20 21 but really it stems from, if I go right back to a journey my mom took me on to sort of mark that transition from being in primary school and moving to secondary school when I was 11 years old. And she took me to, it wasn't a surf trip, but she took me to Nepal, um, which for me being 11 years old, I mean, we'd, I always wanted to go to Tibet. Uh, I always passionate about causes and people who were the underdogs and giving them a voice and, you know, saving the planet. That was always a thing for me. <laughs> but there was amazing because it was one place where I guess I had exposure. Uh, I just, it was the most vivid experience I've ever had. I can recall all the sensory experiences, like the smell, the taste, the sounds, that more than a trip I did like last month. And I think it was just being open to seeing, you know, there's paupers and princes and Buddhist monks and thieves and that whole contrast, life and death in one day. Um, yeah, that sort of complexity to life and opening that curiosity in me and all. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, yeah, the understanding of this, all these different cultures and the way people coped with things. And it, so that trip really stayed with me. It would have been like going to another planet. Yeah, <laughs> mega culture shock. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that that's always been there as well. and That different lens to look at the world with. Yeah. Yeah, that somewhere there's someone that thinks a dollar a day is, whoa, that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Um, and they, they spend their whole day, all I'm going to do today is find food for my family. Guess what I'm going to do tomorrow? Same. <laughs> I don't have time to play Candy Crush. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting. So I guess that must be where part of it comes from. Yeah. So you're on a boat in the Mentawas and you're like, hmm, how can I help or what can I do about this? Was there an overwhelming feeling of this is all going to shit and there's nothing I can do? And did that shift you? Well, no, I just felt that uh, it was amazing. I, here I had something like surfing that was taking me out into the world. And I, yeah, I just wanted to find a way to use that to sort of merge all my passions. I kind of, I went walkabout for three years after I, I finished um high school to sort of try and see if I could make a go at making a career full-time surfing, but also then to dive into those, the other interests I had, which obviously my connection to the sea being so strong was hugely passionate for the marine environment and having it in my mind that I wanted to do, you know, study marine conservation, environmental science. And wanting my dad also was a big uh, promoter of the school of life. So he said, you know what, instead of like, jumping straight into university, I'm more than happy that you want to go travel and experience the world and learn about yourself. <laughs> and yeah, so he was happy to support me on my, in my, uh, yeah, school of life adventure. And that opened up, I just kind of threw myself into all kinds of experiences and doing lots of volunteer work and, um, knowing that, yeah, I, I wanted to also, my mind was really hungry for more knowledge and, to get underneath the surface of things, which I think I've also gotten from being in the sea. And so like going straight into the, to university, it was like a no brainer after that. You're like, this is how I can be the most effective. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting one. I just, I was, I was late to university cause I was off on some trip and <laughs> I surfed my way through it. I, I competed right up until like the last year of doing, doing my PhD just a couple of years ago. So it was always something I knew I never wanted to sack. Like I also didn't like being told that you had to pick just one thing and focus on that, or you can't just, or, or you, I was going to either be a surf bum my whole life or, and I'd never be able to get grounded and focused enough to come back and, and, do university 
or I would just be a too, too distracted. And, and, but really for me, surfing is that balance in my life. I definitely couldn't have done any of the things I've done if I didn't have that to sort of so keep my sanity. You, all the way through university, you competed. Yeah. Competed, traveled, uh, mixed up my studies. Yeah. <laughs> That is that is wild. So, did you move from the junior tour to the pro tour? Um, what I obviously what happened was I also also shifted um, because a lot of that travel I did in those three years was was solo by myself. Um, it just it made me not maybe be able to I suppose rely on, on more of myself. But I shaped it in such a way that. Um, I got sponsorship with a company that they weren't really big and didn't offer me anything super amazing, but enough to, to feed my habit. And then I was able to plan where I wanted to go and then set up the, you know, write the story, contact the magazine, build those kind of relationships and start to build, I suppose, a more of a professional career through free surfing and exploring new off the beaten path places like, uh, you know, the outer reaches of Polynesia or Cuba or the Galapagos. <laughs> and, um, and then also trying to then bring in that in awareness of the environment that I was in and learn more about that. While you're studying at university. Yes, but I studied environmental science and the university I picked was right on the coast in Portrush in Northern Ireland. So I, I got to surf. So that really takes us to another thing altogether. So not only have you decided to, you know, I want this is my passion and this is what I want to do. You've then figured out a way to get paid for it outside of the pro tour, outside of some sort of, you know, mega, mega sponsorship with one of the huge surf companies. But then you've also done it. Like I'm sure you figured out a way. I was like, I need to go do some field research for, <laughs> for my PhD. I think it's real important that I go to the Galapagos. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think that's what my next trip will be. I'll be there for six weeks. Was that the kind of thing you were doing? Yeah, I think I remember my ecology lecture wanting to be able to come in my suitcase with me on that trip. And it was actually, it was, yeah, it was the motivation was to try and find waves. But it was also amazing because I was experiencing in reality stuff we would been learning off lecture notes uh, back at university. Um, yeah, it's funny when I look back at it like that. When you were, because a lot of, you know, people with kids might be listening to this or, you know, people themselves might be listening to this and like wonder, is it safe? I mean, you're not the biggest human being there is. You're, you're, <laughs> no. There's not much of you. There's not much of you. Did you like traveling the world alone as a woman to the kind of places you were traveling to, did you ever feel in any danger? Uh, I have some great stories <laughs> that I, I, yeah, sometimes it's funny now looking back and I just think, I've, yeah, I've, I've definitely lived, I've lived a lot of lives, it feels like already. And I was, yeah, um, a different kind of, I, I did some things I don't think I would probably do now. <laughs> Such as? Uh, well, I, I took myself to Africa and the thing was I wanted to, before I jumped into doing a, a you know, a degree at university, I wanted to really explore what it where my passion lay and what impact I could have. And so I, I sort of signed up on this overland expedition through Kenya, Uganda and Rwanda, um, a combination of doing, you know, getting my hands dirty with some wildlife projects and then getting involved in some volunteer work with more international development stuff. Um, 
yeah, and of course I took my surfboard. So here I am, you know, over overlanding it on on the truck with the board strapped on the roof and with people I, I don't know and all kinds of amazing adventures. And after a few weeks of of that, just really craving the sea. And it, it's totally crazy. I, I land in Mombasa and yeah, I, I just totally wouldn't do what I did now. But anyways, I, <laughs> I got the where I was working at the uh, yeah, this uh, volunteer organization, um, working in orphanages. I, I learned a lot too about the whole impact we have with that kind of travel, um, volunteer travel. But I'll get to that in a minute. But the whole surf thing was that, yeah, I just had to, I just remember like beelining it and having to get to the sea with my surfboard and, and persuading the the driver for the organization, the taxi driver, basically to take me to the edge of the coast and I needed to jump in the water and catch some waves and I didn't really know anything about it there's absolutely no one else surfing there and it's that the like the mouth of Timambasa which you know you later learn that's like really sharp infested waters and <laughs> and there was a whole crowd of gather going what is she doing and I remember being pretty feeling pretty sketchy but I just I just needed to be in the sea tiny blonde white girl on the edge of Africa surfing where all the sharks are yeah and there's apparently saltwater crocodiles as well but <laughs> Were they watching to see what kind of surfing you were doing, or they were just like, "Yeah, I've got, I've got ten bucks. It'll be." <laughs> I don't know. I mean, definitely. ten bucks. She doesn't make it. I don't know. Then, when I was that age, I think I was really testing: is there, is there a higher power or someone mm. watching out for me? Wow. And I think there absolutely has to be because I've been through some situations that, it, yeah, I know I've definitely been more than. How luck. did it feel when you came out of the ocean after having been out of the ocean for quite a while? Oh, it, yeah, it always feels great. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I create, I have this, um, I think I really absorb, like literally can absorb energy from the sea and it'll sustain me so long and then starts to run out. So I notice me and dad, mum, mum starts climbing the walls, but after a week of no surf, uh, we get really irritable and yeah, it's, uh, I can, I can feel it, you know, and I know that I, now I'm aware of it and I know why, but, um, I think the absolute maximum I've gone without being in the sea is probably a month. Amazing. Yeah. Your whole life. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so you're sitting across from me, you've got a, you've got a PhD in, in marine and environmental sciences. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I dropped out of university after six weeks, part-time study. <laughs> um, but you know, you but now your your work is in 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 conserving the ocean. What did you see when you were on those volunteer trips about our impact, about the impact that a Western lifestyle has on on these kind of communities that kind of led you to the work you're doing now? I guess what I really discovered, um, I was probably going to go more at the marine biology route and uh, marine conservation, super passionate about marine protected areas and just, you know, the, um, stop everyone destroying the habitat and fishing all the fish. But what I really learned, I suppose, was in these different projects I was involved with was the real importance of that connection between the human like relationship that we have with the sea and the importance of not ignoring that. And especially of, I suppose, really connecting with people who are dependent on it and what are their stories and learning from them as well as, you know, learning what their needs are and what I, cause I, I worked on, um, amazing project surveying coral reefs in Fiji and 
I just, I sort of, that made me question though. We were doing it um, really without engaging with, with local communities. And so that's where that, that started to, to grow that realization that, yeah, you've got to put people back in this picture because they're core part of this ecosystem. And then in, in Africa, that whole experience, I suppose, of not, I know that I definitely benefited way more from the experience and learned a lot more about myself, but I didn't think I really probably had a very positive impact in, in the community I was with, especially working with, with kids, um, because it was so, so short term and not really getting, you know, not really getting immersed in, in their way of life. And that whole sort of, I guess that feeling of coming in from the outside, the Western world with this perception of how things should be and how to make it better. And, and then really realizing actually people have amazing resilience and resources, incredible strengths, and just the opportunities may be lacking, but who are we to say how things should be done? I guess that struck me. There's an interesting phrase that we've learned this week, don't try and boil the ocean, <laughs> um, which oftentimes I kind of get crushed by this idea that it's up to me. I'm the one that has to help and save. Like there's nothing bigger on this earth than the ocean. The ocean is what is Dr. Carl Kruzelnitsky. He's an Australian science um, guy and he always says they named the planet wrong. <laughs> I should have called it water. Yeah. shouldn't have called it earth. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> so... As someone who does what you do, how do you how do you pull focus? Like you can't. The, the ocean is far too vast for one human being to to do anything. So what's what's the area that you focus on? Yeah, that's always a real challenge for me. I I get um, yeah, I spark off ideas so easily. Um, I yeah, I really take in a lot of what I see, and and I, I find it very hard. Well, whenever I do get set my heart on something, I can really focus on that incredibly well. But yeah, I do. It's it's hard. It's hard not to take it all in. Um, so what I do, I suppose, what I've been learning, especially this last year, is like you're saying, and then, well, as I've been saying, I've been quite a soloist in everything that I've done. I've gone out into the world, traveled by myself, um, doing a PhD, is a solo mission and immersion in your own project, and and things like that, and and then surfing itself, it's it's not a team sport. But what I've been discovering is this, um, yeah, how amazing it can be when you start to actually work together as a team, build your own community, have create more of those connections. And, and there's nothing better to create those kind of connections than through something like a medium, like the ocean and surfing. And so that's what I've been really, that's what's been opening up for me this last year. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just like trusting that when you actually learning to ask also for help, for example, and to yeah put my vision out there and ask for help for, for it to achieve it? It's probably a really simplistic question with no easy answer, but people listening, maybe, you know, they just, we eat fish twice a week. That's what we do. Like how can they be sure that, you know, well, their purchasing decisions are going to, you know, what, what's something that just like just people that aren't you can do, like particularly folks who are listening to this who are, you know, lucky enough and wealthy enough to afford iPads and iPods and things to listen to podcasts on. You know, if you're connected to the internet, you're doing pretty good. So how can people listening to this do something that can have a positive impact? Yeah, it's, um, it's a lot of my, my research has been in, uh, sustainable fisheries. Um, that happened almost by, by accident as well. 
all that travel and being out in the world and, and learning a lot about other other places, I got back home and realized that I didn't really know what was happening in my own backyard. And I wanted to learn more about that and what was what did my sea look like and the story and connection between the coastal communities where I grew up with with the sea. And a lot of also it struck me too. a lot of research is done by, you know, Western institutes in more developing countries and trying to solve problems there. And I thought, well, you know, we're an island nation as well. And our relationship with the sea is, has been really complex. And we, I know there's certain certainly huge issues like overfishing. And we're way behind on on things like creating marine protected areas and that. So I think it started and it starts with for everyone just that awareness and and starting to question like okay what what's happening here where I am and what impact am I having in that and so for me I, I took that further obviously and then I went and and explored it really deeply and did a lot of research that's where my whole uh, PhD mm. was based but um but what about when people are you know at the supermarket yeah. You know, that's probably most of the time where people find in contact with fish is when they're at the supermarket. Oh, it's overwhelmingly complex. Um, it, it's a tough one. Uh, there's no easy answer for that. I mean. Eat less. Eat less fish. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. And I would say. Um, yeah, it's a it's a tricky one. Um <laughs> I would definitely say what 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 is good is if you are if you do want to eat fish and seafood and and that's the thing I mean it is good for you and that sense of source of protein and everything else but it's it's that complex it's far better if you can't if you don't eat it at all <laughs> <laughs> but that said it does it does work when you want to you have to make that local connection and you, it's shopping in supermarkets for fish and not knowing the story of where it comes from I mean it's very hard to determine so the way I, I do it if I'm doing it at home is you really have to start making local connections and knowing where your fish comes from trying to go direct to the source and learning about what the story is of where that food's come from. And that just takes, yeah, much greater. It takes a, a more of an investment, hmm. more of a commitment. And it's hard in this age of convenience, I suppose, to think like that. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, I'd like to come back to the thing that you mentioned that happened in Africa and also happened when you were in Fiji and that you were connecting this work you're doing and the ocean with the other part of the important part of the ecosystem, the people. Yeah. Which leads me to want to ask you about the thing I wanted to ask you about since we started this. <laughs> um, tell me about Iran. Right. Yes. So, yeah, this has been a mega journey for me that's yeah. still ongoing. And it began in 2010. Again, with not... Uh, yeah, with not knowing what to expect. But basically the primary motivation was that, again, that sense of exploration that I've always been driven by and the opportunity or the possibility of discovering some remote corner of the the earth or planet water <laughs> for for waves. And it was waves not, that hasn't been haven't been surfed yet. Yeah, which I mean that's incredibly hard in this day and age to yeah. and because I suppose I grew up with those stories of my dad and, and then my godfather Kevin Naughton and, and his friend Craig Peterson being the guys to pioneer a lot of these spots like in Central America and in um, even in parts like Morocco and Ireland. And, Did they name surf breaks? Uh, oh, yeah, for sure they were. You know, the, the, the going up with stories where <laughs> you can be the first 
person to right. discover a wave and what that experience experience is like. You're and, named after a surf break, right? Yeah, I'm yes. I'm named after a a surf break, a really amazing right-hander in the west coast of Ireland <laughs> next to a castle. It's it's pretty iconic. Next to a castle? Yeah. So as a kid and it was, yeah, so that was Eastkey Castle. I just was like, wow, I have my own castle and my own wave. And <laughs> Not many people can say that. Yeah. Thanks, dad. Um, That's pretty awesome. So yeah, my dad's favorite surf break. So always having that, that sort of sense of sense yeah. of adventure but that, why iran and, and and what so 2010 so is in full effect yes what did made you think i can do that and yeah he was in full effect and there's this big campaign amnesty international had launched um and yeah it was so i know there, there was a lot of resistance to me going there and from family and friends but for me, I, I just, when the idea was pitched to me, and it, it was pitched through, I guess, a friend of a friend. He'd worked for Lonely Planet, and he'd been in Pakistan on the on the coastline next to Iran and thought, well, if there's waves here, then surely there must be waves over there. And um, that's that's it was sort of a mad idea that got thrown around and then actually began to gain traction. But what I what struck me was just how little I knew about it. I had to go immediately on Google Earth and see does it even have a coast and um, yeah. Because if you say Iran and surf, there's not many people that'll be able to tell you that you know there's surf in Iran. No, I mean there was very 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 little to go on. I think there had been a couple of guys from France for Storm Rider Guide um, to do a trip there. They passed through maybe for three days at this place called Chabahar in the Baluchistan province of Iran. So the far southeastern corner, which the New York Times happens to dub the scariest little corner on the earth. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, so now that I'm saying it all, it just sounds totally insane. But it was the fact of my own ignorance and already having these notions and ideas or preconceptions, misconceptions, whatever you want to call them, assumptions, that weren't from my direct experience. And so I guess I also was curious to really know, to go with, try to go with that kind of open mind to see what it was like from, for myself. I just, yeah, you've got to sort of, I, I've always believed that, um, make up your own mind <laughs> and, and experience it for yourself. And don't, yeah, that whole thing of just really not trying to carry, not to experience the world with the assumption or try to, um, impose a judgment upon upon it and it is what it is so i i was pretty curious to see what that would be like how was it getting visas and clearance to travel and all that well that that was interesting that was a tricky process but initially actually not bad for me being in ireland and the dublin embassy being okay but it was it's harder for people trying to get a and a, a visa from London, for example. But there was a few of us all like signed up on the trip and what ha everyone began to fall by the wayside the closer we got to making it happen. To the point where I've already there, just landed in Tehran and get word that the guy who organized the whole trip, the photographer, had missed his flight and wasn't, wasn't coming. He bailed, basically. So <laughs> I'm there and this other woman, Marion from France, she makes it and she, she does not really a uh, surfer, but wanted to document the experience. So she's there with her sort of small video camera and I'm there with my surfboard, two women in Iran on a surf mission. <laughs> and we said, well, we're here now. So, you know, 
I may as well. Did carry it ever cross on. your mind to get back on the plane and get out of there? Uh, no, because I was actually as soon as I arrived, I was expecting like immediate resistance and challenge and having to like uh, struggle my way through security and be you know detained and questioned over what was this I was carrying like this surfboard which happened to have you know like military patterned board bag silly idea <laughs> but nothing it was total it was totally disarming almost to the point where I was like waiting like hang on a minute are you sure it's okay for me just to walk out these doors and get in the hotel bus and right um yeah and everyone actually just been really curious and going oh what's that for and um I guess in the Caspian Sea there's uh there's maybe some wakeboarding or kite surfing or windsurfing happening um every now and again but so I guess people were it was a different story because where we were going was such a remote part within Iran that Iranians don't even really go there so <laughs> it, and, and what's Iran like because we're kind of you know at the time certainly when Ahmadinejad was there we're led yeah. to believe they just want to kill everyone with nukes and they're repressing everyone and well, what struck me, we had a few days in Tehran, which is absolutely, you know, a massive city. Uh, it was during Ramadan, so it was pretty quiet. Um, but the parks were absolutely stunning. And as soon as the like, sun would start to set, all families would come out and start picnicking. And um, there's a real like social atmosphere built around family. And that's the real core of um, of society there. And it's just this amazing tradition and culture of welcoming, welcoming strangers and having this real sense of hospitality that's really authentic. And so that, that surprised me that we don't really get told that, <laughs> not the images that we get from Iran on the other side. And then going to somewhere like Chabahar, which isn't even, it's not in any guidebook. It's uh, yeah, it's, really off the beaten track and Iran too the other thing that um, struck me almost immediately was just the vastness of it and the diversity diversity in climate um from like snow-capped mountains desert um you know you have the and then also culturally so many different um ethnicities and languages and it was yeah that part was alone was fascinating and then the art and culture of creativity and architecture and their sense of identity being so connected to their heritage as Persians and that um, amazing, yeah, it, was, it almost reminded me of being in Ireland and we're really attached to our mythology and legends and heritage and we've got all our own ancient monuments and uh, there was that real sense of pride in that there of being uh, part of this ancient civilization in the world that had this story and how, how Earth was shaped and being really the center of civilization for a very long time. And we have to remember too, that the revolution happened in, it, you know, in 1979. So it's before that it, it was a different Iran and that's still alive in, in people's memories. So also what really struck me was just how amazing, like they have this incredible sense of humor, just to be able to put up with that level of, it's it's not easy to live in in that situation when mm. you have all this education knowledge and expectations and desires and freedoms that are the same as i have yeah and so i'm i'm guessing that you know was it was it that you and marion was it easy to film on the street did you have to wear the, the head coverings and all that kind of stuff yeah we were always always had to keep our head covered mm. and i uh, was from the beginning that because this was 
an unusual thing to do. And as a woman, not knowing how it was going to be received at all, um, to not give anyone an excuse to point a finger at, at me and, mm-hmm. and say what I was doing was wrong or because this was, I wasn't fully aware of it at the time, but it, it ended up, it, oh, it could be an opportunity for others who wanted to do it. And that might be immediately closed off by one of my actions. And I just didn't want that ever to happen. So I really did go in with that level of, okay, we're respecting what the, how it is here. And you have to stay covered if you're a woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, in Ireland in the wintertime, I stay completely covered, but for kind of different reasons. (laughs) And yeah, so even when I was surfing, I, I made sure even if it was, we're surfing was pretty remote out in the desert incredible landscape like being in mars and and still staying covered all right so you had well you know you're surfing an island you've got the hood already right? yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah. but tell me about the because you didn't just it wasn't just you surfing was it no i mean that first time was just the, the big eye opener and the really that was the catalyst for what's now become a whole i would say pretty much a movement and led to me co-founding Waves of Freedom um, just this year and launching that more officially. So it was a really organic process. And the story is that after that uh, trip of me going surfing really by myself with Marion and Marion recording that story in such an unusual place with that contrast of imagery, totally kind of stereotypical of you know, so a woman surfing, not in a bikini, somewhere hot, but completely covered, and then in Iran woman surfing Iran and so obviously it caught a lot of attention and created quite a big stir and a massively positive reaction both outside Iran but also within Iran so we had a lot of messages of people contacting us wanting to know more and especially other women other sportswomen were really excited by the possibility that they could surf in in their own in their own country and I guess the thing is, gosh, you couldn't possibly have been the first woman to surf there. But the thing is, it's where it is in Iran. It's so remote and isolated in Baluchistan. And the culture there, it's a different, it's a Baluchi culture. And it's very different situation for women, very traditional. And there just hasn't been the opportunity for anyone to surf there at all. So when I was there, there was no one else surfing and no one else had seen anyone else surf there ever before. We knew we wanted to go back and get deeper underneath the surface to actually really connect more with people and understand what that experience was like doing something like that for the first time in a place like Iran as a woman, uh, as an Iranian woman. And we built this lovely relationship with um, a couple of a couple of women. One's Mona. She's like this professional snowboarder from Tehran. And, and Shala, who's been like a swimming her whole life. And she started scuba diving in Chabahar as well. And one of the very few women to, to start to do that. Um, so they were the, I guess they are Iran's first surfers. Um, they're, they're women, which is <laughs> pretty awesome. And they, they, and for the thing I thought would be the biggest barrier is trying to convince the officials and authorities and powers that be that it's okay for women to go into the sea. It's this open public space. And as a woman in the water and trying to keep covered, I, you know, it can be tricky. But actually there was very, I was surprised by the lack of resistance to that. And the thing that was probably more of a challenge was the cultural barriers within Iran. So the girls coming more from the bigger cities, which are more cosmopolitan. And they've definitely, I've noticed a shift from the last time to where I went last summer with the new president, this air of optimism and hope and, um, 
and the glamour that women have there. And then landing somewhere like Baluchistan, Chabahar, and it being, I mean, very rural, um, definitely the poorest part of Iran. And then the women are very much kept in the background. And that being that being actually the so I, I, what I realized was that here we were on this beach and the whole energy and purpose had shifted why everyone was there. And people who would never normally ever connect or talk with each other were sharing something that, like surfing for the first time. So it just, the energy was unbelievable. It blew me away. Um, so much more powerful than me just going surfing to find a wave for myself, you know. So I've got to ask the question, like we talked before about the difficulty of getting boards in Donegal, how did you get surfboards <laughs> into Iran? Yeah, it took some convincing to like, tell people that you know you could do this in Iran to begin with. But we managed to get a lot of um, a lot of support because it's I guess it's something that's so different. And we brought what boards we could, but we didn't know what the reaction would be if anyone would even be willing to do it or allowed to do it. So we we brought over maybe half a dozen surfboards, some of my own, and others we got like sponsored, you know, donated from surf clubs back home and shipped them over. Soft top boards and yeah, things like that. Yeah. yeah, so to be able to teach teach mm. teach the girls how to surf. And Wet, what was suits and things? Uh yeah. So then we also had this company who make um hijabs, like the head mm-hmm. head coverings for Muslim women in sport. And they had these ones designed for swimming. So I tried it out the time I was there and we, we got some of them. But it's really funny because the girls are like they're super into because they have to stay covered, they're they are stunningly, stunningly beautiful, but they're really into their actual, their appearance and making the most of what they can. So it was very funny that the girls are super uh, fashion conscious. So like really, that was important also, which I thought that was, oh, that's interesting. Um, so I think that's the next step having to work on, you know, cool surf clothing that keeps you covered, but you know, <laughs> it's still fashionable. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't anticipated that either. But um yeah. Well, I should there's a there's a company in Australia, they make the thing called the Burkini and they sell it all over the world. Yeah. Um and I know that the uh the Islamic Australians uh who are lifeguards wear it. Yeah. Yeah. On on the beaches in, in, in Sydney. Yeah. So that, that that exists. If you need to get in touch with it, I'm sure someone listening can yeah, help you figure that out. Yeah, yeah. So what is it like? So you turn up to this beach again. They're like, "Oh, we remember you. You're the girl that was here last year." Uh, but there's so many more of you, and you're wearing neoprene. What the hell? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, it caused we just the finest. One of the best beaches for surfing was at this little fishing village called Ramin, and we're actually going back there in August to help officially establish, um, help them, I suppose, put in the, their own structures to get their first surf club going. And so we're in touch with them all, all the time now. But really, from when we went back to that that time. What was also really fascinating was that, the, so we we attracted quite a crowd on the beach as well. But a lot of the like the other kids from the village came, and you know the young boys, and they're watching all these girls in the water surfing. It's the first time they've seen anyone surf. And I remember one of them asked me, like, "Is this is this something that you know can guys do this too, or is this something only women can do?" <laughs> I was like, "No way." <laughs> So this kid's never seen surfing. Yes. The first time he ever sees surfing, his only experience is that all the women are doing it. Yes. And so he asks, this looks like fun. A boy's allowed to do this. Yes. Good. 
amazing. Oh my God. That was incredible. You know? Um, and uh, like I took, cause I wanted the, the girls to be comfortable and have a safe enough space to get the hang of it first themselves. But there was just such an excitement that it, it would, it would just expand and I turn around and there'd be more and more and more people in the water. But when we left the beach the first evening and I turned back and um, I'd given the other girls like the lesson on the beach, how to pop up on your surfboard. And it was the sweetest thing. All the boys had sort of the little boys had organized themselves in a row on the sand doing their like paddle, 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 paddle and pop up practicing their, their pop-up stuff. They'd be in copying you. Yes. So yeah. they'd watched and then they're like, okay, we've got to practice. And so needless to say, they weren't far behind in, in joining us, which was also an incredible experience. You have a mix of men and women, boys and girls in the water. Fathers coming up asking me to teach their daughters or husbands to take their wives surfing. And we also were aware too that we needed to make to to get our story across of why we were doing what we were doing from the beginning and and to understand how it was going to be accepted. So we met with them. A member of parliament and local political leaders, the mayor of Jabahar. And uh, there's so there's, yeah, this incredible image walking along the beach for the first evening we get there um, with this huge, big bearded man, uh, Mr. Jagdal. Uh, he's from, he's in the uh, politician, member of parliament. And he just has this incredible, like, charisma, really big beard. The bigger your beard, the more powerful and religious and holy you are. Um, and we kept walking along on my tiny little bright pink surfboard and discussing how, you know, the, the region could be developed and we could expand water sports and get everyone surfing. And that for, you know, sport and surfing and all of that's really important for the health and well-being and your spirituality. And it's something that you know, women should be able to do, too, if, if we respect the hijab and also how important it is for women to have other women. And, you know, to be able to to teach them and show them how to do how to do it. So what's amazing now is you have these like uh, role models, uh, other women in their own country in Iran, really um, hooked on surfing and keen to to spread it. So that opportunity is open now for both uh, both boys and girls in a place like Iran to surf. What blows my mind is that you've essentially started a surf culture. You started a surf culture in a country that's never had a surf culture, but you've started it as an even thing. Mm-hmm. You started yeah. it as 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 women and men. Yeah, and I would. I'm really keen to go back. You know, to keep following up and following through, and not just jump in, pass out some surfboards, and leave again, because I know the energy of the ocean, that the power of it to be able to transcend all those barriers that are put up that we put up within ourselves and on land. But, but I know how challenging that can be when you get back out of the water and, and you're back in those, you know, where all those social rules apply still. So navigating that will still be a challenge and how that, that power play, um, turns out in the end, but it definitely, it's definitely off to a good start. If people uh, listening want to help, can they help you in any way? Absolutely. Um, yes. And Waves of Freedom is built on that whole notion of, I guess, surfing really just being the vehicle or medium to help uh, empower people because of that uh, feeling that you get from it and also to address the bigger issues, but create space for that in a really fun way through surfing. Um, 
instead of diving straight in there and trying to tackle these big issues of inequalities and, and things like that. So we really, um, really wanted to keep Waves of Freedom growing. And um, we are going back. We're having a follow-up project called Surf Seeds that we're fundraising for to get, I guess, more supplies out, but also to have a, a more collaborative skill sharing workshop so we can pass on skills like how to teach other people uh, to surf and surf instructing. Um, if a surfboard shaper who wants to come out to do demonstrations with the the materials that they have and how to make surfboards and and things like that, just to, to really help support whatever their vision is for how to, to grow surfing there. Um, so, you know, make it quite a, a, quite a fun workshop series and surf festival and see what happens. Oh, goodness. I never, ever anticipated this. Um, but yeah, so the, the motivation is there just to, to, to keep rolling with that. And Marion then having her on board is documenting the whole experience and the story. So it's lovely to be able to share that um, as a story that, is so much more than just a surf story. Um, but is there, is there a way that people can contribute? Is there a way that people can, can be a part of it yet? Yeah, absolutely. You can uh, sign up and follow our progress and donate on uh, wavesoffreedom.org. Right. Yeah. Brilliant. Please join us. And we're always looking out for, um, we, you know, we've got a cool program we want to launch too on it's a waves of freedom ambassadors, like a mentorship program, starting with the, the girls in, in Iran to create that network of support that, you know, a sisterhood that you can, um, navigate these, these issues that come up, but you don't have to do it alone. Um, so it's, I'm really excited by the potential that, that it has you are changing the world Eski. <laughs> and yeah it's just lovely to be able to share something that i'm so passionate about and actually use that then to connect with other people what the connection that i make is there's that the 1972 tour of uh the american ping pong team to china oh wow the, yeah You've heard about this, the ping pong diplomacy? No, I so haven't. So America and China, China was like, that's it. No, like America and China were just like not talking <laughs> yeah. at all, yeah. at all. And that one was really afraid of the other. And then it transpired that one of them challenged the other to a ping pong game. And so a ping pong game happened between uh, the Americans and the Chinese. And a tour happened and it was like the first Americans that had ever happened that kind of opened the door. It let a little crack in and then cut to like 18 months later and Nixon's there. The president visited China. But wow. it, it took a game of ping pong. It took a game of ping pong. Ping mm. pong. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> to, to, to kind of allow this case. Wouldn't it be an incredible possibility if, you know, you got some Americans on board and – you know, uh, Americans like coming to Iran to teach people how to surf or men, women how to surf. And like, and like that was a way that kind of started that channel of, of people coming through and exposure to, yeah. you know, normality. I mean, you, as you described, it was Tehran wasn't full of people that wanted to nuke everyone. It was full of people coming out of the parklands and having picnics when Ramadan was breaking in the evenings. You know, <laughs> it's like what you what you hear and what you see are two different things. Yeah. And wouldn't that be wild if what you're starting kind of it already it sounds like it's leading to something incredible. That's wild, Aski. That's so inspiring. Uh, yeah, I feel very excited by the possibilities that are there. Yeah. Whatever I can do to, to assist <laughs> in any way, shape or form. That's just 
mind blowing. Do you need me to pitch for you down in Australia? Do you need me to fundraise for you? Absolutely. You to, yes, you please. Go down and, talk here and, <laughs> and, and hit up, uh, you know, hit up Rip Curl and Quicksilver and Billabong. <laughs> More the merrier. Let's create a, yeah, a Waves of Freedom tribe. <laughs> Man, that is amazing. Eski, that's, thank you so much for sharing this thank, story with me. That's thank you. just so incredible. And I can't wait to hear what people get from this. And I can't wait to hear the stories of the women that you're working with not only you know because you know how you change how they change how how you you know experience what happens there yeah it, it just makes me realize that we have no idea that i suppose the impact of our actions so it's it's really important i suppose to have that um yeah the way this all came about was just really letting go of my own assumptions and not carrying fear like not acting from a place of fear and just being open to whatever i might experience and not being closed to possibilities and and many amazing things can happen that really surprise you life can be so surprising and really actually unexpectedly beautiful in the most unlikely places how can you feel fear when you're laughing <laughs> uh, yeah i mean crazy things happen and then you just laugh right <laughs> There it is. That's Eski Britton. Find her on Twitter at E-A-S-K-E-Y surf, Eski surf. And visit her website, wavesoffreedom.org. You can uh, get on board and participate there. Uh, she's a remarkable woman, right? Um, makes me want to go surfing. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Please rate, uh, comment on the show, share out a link to uh, help support the show. I'm a one-man operation. And I'm grateful to each and every one of you for listening. I know there's a lot of you listening, so that's that really makes me uh, makes me very happy. I'm on telly soon in Australia. If you're in Australia, um, if you're not in Australia, in Australia, I work on The Bachelor. Uh, we're doing season two at the moment, and it starts on the 30th of July. It's a Wednesday night. So when you watch that show, you'll see me clean shaven in a borrowed suit, and uh, knowing. In your mind that because you listen to this show, you know something about me that not everybody else that watches the show knows. So, because I don't just talk about the stuff that I talk about here on The Bachelor. No, it's all about the show. So, anyway, you and I can share that. And um, just know there's sometimes, I'll, you know, if there's a knowing glance down the camera, you know that I'm looking at you going, you know that I know that you know about me. <laughs> but not everybody knows. But you know, because you listen. So, yeah, thanks for coming. Honestly, it makes my week way easier that I can do this for you. So thank you. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 